Okay, it's really good to be with you all. Um, hearing those announcements reminded me that a big part of how uh, the journey that I'm on was started was once upon a time I was able to work as a summer worker with Ebenezer. That's when we met. <laughs> and, and, but I was posted at the House for All Nations site, so that's a church of your congregation on Avenue W on the west side, and that's again where I'm attending now, and I live there, and so that's a great job. I'll just pitch for that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I found myself in that phase of my life asking big questions that I'm sure many of you in your seats are asking. Why has God put me here tonight? What are you doing here tonight? What are you hoping to learn? What are you going to do as a result of what you learn tonight? Why are we here for such a time as this? What are the unique ways that God has gifted us and shaped us and made us? And how is that going to make a difference in the world around us today? And I believe that God is inviting us to do the same thing that he has always invited us to do, to pursue right relationship with God and to pursue right relationship with one another, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and love the, your neighbor as yourself. And so I, I'm um, always curious about the way of Jesus when he invites us into mission with him. How does he model that for us and how does he invite us to join? So Jesus did this by, John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, or the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, is another translation of that. So Jesus um, pursued the restoration of all things into right relationship by locating his ministries at the margins of society. He paid special attention to the places that are often overlooked and rejected. Luke 4 says that he, um, that he, that Luke 4 is a, Jesus saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is the invitation that he is inviting us into with him, this vision of um, the, the practice of wholeness and healing and well-being. And Jesus didn't do this alone, but he developed the disciples who then developed the early church and every generation of Christians since then to partner with Jesus in the pursuit of this kingdom coming, a place where all things are in right relationship again. So what could it look like for us to join Jesus in the mission of restoring all things into right relationship in Saskatoon? Our city is a really special place, and I've moved away a couple of times, and I keep coming back. And it's the story of this city that has drawn me and compelled me uh, to find my place in this city. So um, the neighborhood that I live in is the west side of the city. How many of you live on the west side of the city? I'm guessing because we're on the east side, probably a lot of you live over here, but a few hand. Um, in, my, in my neighborhood, there's a lot of First Nations people, and the, it's one of the largest urban indigenous populations in the city, and, and um, First Nations people are largely coming from, urb, from reserves and coming to this city for a uh, new life, for some new op opportunities in education and employment, but often they find that these visions and dreams that they have are frustrated by poverty, by broken relationship, by gang violence. Another uh, population in my community is the newcomer population, coming as largely as refugees, and so not necessarily choosing to be here, but again, coming with a hope of establishing a new life in an unfamiliar place. And often, those hopes are also frustrated. And these populations are next-door neighbors in the West Side, but their shared obstacles of fear, of poverty, and of racism keep perpetuating the segregation that happens in our community and actually keep people from, um, from joining one another in solidarity and keep people apart from one another. So these dynamics of fear and trauma and poverty are deeply entrenched and they're complex, and so they require a deep and dynamic and holistic solutions. And they require a lot of hope in our God who holds, restores, and renews all things. So with Servant Partners, we move into communities that experience poverty, and we learn from our neighbors about what they care about in these communities, what gives them hope, what causes them pain. Together, we long for individual encounter with Jesus, where neighbors experience a heart change, 
And from that place, they discovered their giftedness, passion, and capacity to pursue the holistic transformation of the neighborhood that God has placed them in. We partner with local churches and organizations and use strategies of community organizing and leadership mentorship to connect the strengths of the community to the longings of the community so that change is coming from within the community rather than coming from outside of the community. So I want to share a few stories of what that actually looks like because that all sounds great, um, but what do we actually get to do? So here's a few stories just from this week that have came to my attention of what it means to walk alongside neighbors towards holistic transformation in themselves and in the community. Um, I've heard a few stories of needs around employment this week, and um, I received a couple of messages from, from friends, one who had her hours cut back at the daycare that she was working at, um, and another one who is looking for work after he was let go of a job because he had a back injury and needed, needed the physical capacity for work, and so they no longer um, kept him on. And so these, these friends are looking for work. I also live with a youth from the community, and she um, is about to graduate, Lord willing, through lots of prayer and daily pep talks. In a couple of months, she will be graduating. And she wants to go to YWAM and continue her discipleship journey there. So she'll need to work for um, a while before she's able to, to do that. And so she had some friends over tonight at dinner, and I was asking them about their experience of looking for work. And as Indigenous youth in the community, it's a really frustrating experience to put yourself out there without the skills and experience. Um, and, um, and, and to try and find work. And so these complex um, problems need a whole system of support. They need people to advocate for rights, to leverage our middle-class connections, set them up with job opportunities, with good employers, and eventually I would love in our community to offer job skill training and create good employment opportunities. Another area of need is, is in housing. Um, I've been noticing that a lot of my time is often spent helping neighbors move or re, like set up home somewhere. And if you've ever helped a friend move, you know that it's your best friends who will show up to help move. It's not a fun job. Um, but it's a great opportunity to be in it with neighbors. But eventually, we have to start asking why. Why are people moving so often? And, and as I've gotten deeper into that conversation, um, there's a lot of uh, vulnerability when you're low income and looking for places to live. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of negligent landlords who make a profit off of poverty. One of my friends uh, moved in the fall, and he was so excited to move away from his parents, which was a, a, not a great environment for him to live in, to live in his own place. So I helped him move some of his things, and um, when I showed up at the place he was staying at, I was surprised to see that the house was still boarded up, and yet his landlord thought it was okay for him to live in there. And we get inside, and the appliances aren't working, the electricity does work, but there's no heat and no water, so we had filled up jugs of water from my house, like we're camping or something, to move him into this place. And it's not like it's cheap. He was paying 1100 a, a month for that place. But, beca but because um, of the vulnerability, it's so much more than just a lack of income um, when you're entrenched in poverty. It's the deeply ingrained belief that your voice doesn't make a difference that is the most detrimental to people in poverty. Um, and so people in vulnerable situations like this don't believe that they can actually complain about it or see anything change. So of course, he's since moved on from that place. I think he's moved twice since then now. And so what do we do as we accompany and walk alongside um, our neighbors in these scenarios? I think there's great opportunities uh, to, be, uh, to accompany neighbors. There's great opportunities for providing and improving the quality of housing. Um, and we also need to center the, our neighbors' voices in discussions that are being had in the city. And so I've gone to City Hall with some of my neighbors and talked about accountability measures for negligent landlords. So there's this whole robust system of support that as we learn the, the issues that are facing our community, we can walk alongside neighbors. I also want to make a special invitation to the men in this room. So if you're a man, you can sit up a little taller because this one's for you. Um, many of the stories that I experience on a daily basis affect the men in my community. 
there's some really deep and complex reasons that men in my community experience the shame of not being able to be the fathers and the partners that they long to be. And so there's such a need for healthy, brave men to mentor and offer support in my community. There's a need for healthy and brave men to come and to see my neighbors and to recognize their gifts and their strengths and walk with them on a journey towards freedom and healing. So if you think, if that stirs something in you, I'd love to talk with you more about that. Um, I am offering an internship starting, in, starting this summer, and I would love to invite you guys to take a risk in this of this exploration. The internship is focused around leadership development, where interns will pursue their own development as they walk alongside neighbors in poverty, um, experiencing their own leadership development. And so there's a, a brochure on your tables with some information about uh, what you'll get to do as an intern. But I just want to say that I really believe that everyone in this room um, is, is equipped with gifts and skills and passions um, that God can use to connect with the needs of the community. Just like I believe that all of my neighbors are gifted with skills and gifts and passions that God longs to use. Um, one of the interns that I led in Vancouver when I was living there for a while, he's, he said this about his internship experience. He said, the Servant Partners Internship is a unique learning opportunity that couples strong theological teaching with everyday field experience. An ideal intern candidate is someone who looks around and thinks, there must be more to the world we live in than this. Are you not content just listening and learning about Jesus, but you want to try living it out? Are you willing to be changed as a result of being in genuine relationship with the urban poor? Are you willing to accept that transformation is up to God and your time in the internship is just a small piece of a grander narrative? If you've answered yes, then you're probably in the right place. So if you feel something resonate or stirring with you today, let's talk afterwards. Um, if God is inviting you into deeper solidarity with the poor or into a new level of your leadership, let's talk. And I really look forward to, um, to hearing stories of where, where your discernment with God is leading you in this world. Frederick, Frederick Buchner says this about the journey of discernment. He says, your calling is the intersection where your great joy meets the world's great need. So it's an exciting journey to ask God, what is the invitation that you have for me tonight? So thanks for letting me be part of that invitation. Servant Partners is an like a missions organization where we move into communities um, that experience poverty, and we do church planting, leadership development, and community organizing alongside our neighbors. Yeah, I think, as, yeah, as I'm doing this work, um, I'm in an exciting phase of learning a lot about the community, and it's easy for me to, uh, to want to meet all of the needs. And so actually coming here tonight to invite you to join me is a, is a discipline in, um, in me realizing my own limits and um, trusting that God is ultimately the one who will meet the needs of my community, and I don't need to do it all, nor can or should I do it all. Um, so I think I could really use prayers for, um, for rest and restoration in this work. Um, and giving up the savior complex that makes me think that I'm, um, that it's up to me. That would be really a beautiful gift. Excellent. Yeah, thanks. Well, can I take some time to pray for you right yeah. now? You can stay up here. Um, I'm going to invite you all to pray alongside with me. Um, I know a lot of times we pray around the tables as tables, but tonight I'm going to pray and just ask that you join in prayer with me as we pray for Caitlin and Servant Partners and her community. So join me in prayer. God, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to be good neighbors, that when we are more fortunate in the things that we, the resources that we have access to than other people, that we can share them, and that you call us to, that you call us to lift up one another doesn't mean just the people who um, we're best friends with or those that are our family, but those around us. Um, and so, God, I thank you for what we do have and that what we can contribute. And I thank you for servant partners and for Caitlin for the way that they um, 
are part of the community, that they don't just swoop in and say, hey, this is what we need to do to fix things and to fix you, but that they live in the community. They work with the community um, and they empower the people in the community to do what they need to do, um, which helps provide dignity back. And so God, I thank you that they are willing and that Caitlin is willing to do that because you have gifted her with a just a personality and the, the gifts of what are needed and the compassion to be with people that others may not even notice sometimes. And you give her the eyes to see. And so we thank you for that. And God, we pray for Caitlin specifically that as she is doing this work, which is amazing, and you have called her to it, that she would be re realizing her own limits and that she daily, constantly recognizes that it is you that saves people. It is you that meet, meets needs, that you use us to do so, but it is you who knows exactly what people need and how to meet them. Lord, would you help her to have rest and restoration in this season as she sees all the things around her and because of her heart wants to be part of helping everyone and anyone that is around her. She has such a heart for restoration in her community and the restoration of people, um, not only to you, but in their relationships with other people. Lord, would we be good neighbors wherever we are living? We're so fortunate that in this city we have so many nations, but God, we know that that can bring conflict. We know that it can be a drain on some resources, especially when systems are not set up properly. And so we ask that they there would be renewal and um, just restructuring of systems to better help those in need. God, would there be healing in the community? Would you pe heal people's hearts? Would you heal deep, deep wounds that have come about through generations of abuse, generations of poverty, generations of fear, but would it be through you that those things are healed? Lord, we pray for courageous, healthy men who will rise up in the community to mentor and to support and to disciple, and we pray for the healing of the men in the community that are there right now. They have such an opportunity to be able to lead, but they need to be healthy themselves. Lord, we pray against fear in the community, the fear that isolates people, that causes segregation, that keeps neighbors from getting to know one another and to be true neighbors that help one another out, that keeps the fear that keeps people from belonging or feeling like they belong. And so, Lord, we ask that there would be people who would rise up and be advocates and supports. And Lord, if there are people in this room who are supposed to be doing that, would you touch our hearts? Would you be speaking to us? And would we actually be obedient in that and step out where we need to? And so Lord, we ask that you would have your hand upon servant partners and upon Caitlin as they work in the community. And above all, Lord, we we pray for healing in Saskatoon, in all areas, especially on the west side where there is so much damage and um, just so many issues that keep people where they're at. So Lord, we thank you tonight. We thank you that we have the opportunity to be here, to learn, to grow closer to you, to build relationships with one another. God, would you be with us as we hear from your word as Chet teaches, would you be with him as he shares with us? And would you be with us as we listen? Take distract, distractions from our mind, Lord, and speak to us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin, for sharing. And uh, I was here when... Caitlin was working that summer, and, and I, I really want to encourage you to pray about it, about 
an internship like that, not only could you be a, a blessing, uh, and would you be blessed by uh, being a part of a work like that, but Caitlin's awesome, and you'd, you'd love working with her too. She's fantastic, so. <clears throat> so, uh, we have been going over the last four weeks, going through a, a series on relating to God, and we've been more focusing on the how to relate with God. So looking at being in the Word of God uh, through prayer, through following the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. Now we're getting, just going to give a little bit of a shift. We're still in the series on relating to God, but we want to take the next five weeks and just look at some key aspects of the character of God or the nature of God that we discover in His Word. If we want to know God, we need to discover what he is actually like in his word, not just what we've heard him to be like via other people only, or just based on our experiences and the way we process those experiences with God only. Um, if any of you have gone through the discipleship journey, uh, or been, a, been in one of our discipleship groups. There's a guy named Dave Buring who uh, teaches in those videos and put that whole discipleship thing package together. And he makes this statement in it. He says, the image of God that you carry around in your mind affects how you live your daily life. And so if we're just getting that image of God based on how we alone are viewing certain experiences in our own lives or what we've heard via other people that God is like, but we're not actually seeing it for ourselves in Scripture, we may end up with a wonky view of who God is, and that could change how we actually live our daily lives. So it's really important if we are to relate with God to have a look at Scripture on a regular basis and take the, you know, it's kind of like having this lens that we're looking through of the world and there's all these different things happening in the world around us and then all of a sudden, you know, there's this, this thing called the character of God that is out here and we're trying to figure out what is God like when we have this lens of the world around, and we need to shift that, where we have the Word of God in front of us, and we're going, this is who God is. We can read about Him. We can see it. And then the things of the world come into play, and we go, we see the things of the world through the lens of who God is. And that changes how we live our lives. So tonight, I want to look at a part of God that we may not think about very often, but it actually could have a significant impact on how we relate with him. And the aspect of God's character I want to focus on tonight is that God is slow to anger. Okay, uh, it actually speaks of this in Psalm 103. I'm going to have all these passages of scripture up here. We're going to have quite a bit tonight. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, I found it interesting in all the stuff that I, you know, researching things over the years, but specifically getting everything lined up for tonight to come and talk about this, that it doesn't say that God doesn't get angry. It just says that he's slow to get angry. In fact, in the Word of God, it actually speaks a few times of when God became angry. The most, one of the more popular passages is focused on Jesus in Matthew chapter 21. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house 
will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Little shift. Then the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. The context of this passage is that the temple of God was designed as a place for people to come in order to confess their sins, make a sacrifice for their sins, because that was a requirement, as a way for them to realize there is a cost to sin, it is damaging, and then be restored into right relationship with God. And often these sacrifices were made by people bringing some of their own animals to the temple. They had raised, they had invested money into those animals, and now all of a sudden they're going, my sin has a cost, and they're coming to the temple, and they're going, I now have to sacrifice this animal because of my sin. There is a cost. And some businessmen around that time were going, hmm, we've got lots of animals. What if we bring those animals to the temple and then we sell them? Sounds like a good business plan. There's an ever-flowing group of people that are coming, making sacrifices. So they set up these tables and they're selling other goods and they're selling animals that would be sacrificed and all kinds of things, essentially making money off of people's sin, taking advantage of an opportunity. And Jesus walks in and he kind of loses it because he's going, this is to be a temple where people come in and draw close to God the Father and have restored relationship, and you guys are taking advantage of this location and this sacred moment, and you're making money off of it. And so he walks in, and he tips over their tables, knocks over their, their benches. And this passage... This is why he became angry. And this passage has often been referred to by uh, uh, people as a time when, when Jesus got angry, where God expresses his anger. And sometimes it's been more specifically referred to as a passage that describes righteous anger. Okay? Another passage where we see that Jesus gets angry is actually in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. Then Jesus asked them, the ones that were trying to accuse him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they all remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deep distress at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees, these were these men that were the religious leaders, went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Again, Jesus is in a synagogue. Okay, he was in the temple in the last story. He's in a synagogue, and this is a place where Scripture would be read, the Old Testament scrolls would be opened up, and Scripture would be read, and God would be worshipped, and people would pray. And some of the religious leaders are there trying to find fault with Jesus. It was unlawful, according to the Old Testament law, to work on the Sabbath. And these religious leaders 
had deemed any healing that Jesus would do as work. So for Jesus to heal would have him at fault with the Old Testament law. But Jesus kind of shocks them by asking a question that exposes the condition of their hearts. In other words, he was asking them the question, if the holy God made the Sabbath, would he not want me to do good and bring life on the Sabbath? Or should we just let this cripple go and let evil win and discouragement and death come upon him? And the fact that they stood silent because they're going, oh gosh, we have no idea how to answer this question, exposed the condition of their heart. They didn't understand God's heart as the religious leaders that were supposed to be resent, representing God. And that angered and distressed and it discouraged Jesus. And Jesus had this righteous anger over the hardness of heart of these religious leaders that everybody was to look to as a representation of God the Father. They didn't know God's heart. God was being misrepresented. Now, in both of these stories, I just want to point out a couple of things. After Jesus was angry in the temple in the first story, it states that the blind and the lame came and he healed them. And in the passage in Mark that's up on the screen, he healed the lame man after he asked the question to the religious leaders. Now, Jesus may have harmed a few tables and a few benches when he flipped them over in the temple, maybe some of their merchandise, but he never yelled at people. He never belittled them. He never hit them. He never stuck his fist in their face. He never went and laughed and then went and spread, spread a bunch of negative rumors. He never sinned in his anger. He was simply angry at the impact of sin, the hardness of people's hearts, and the misrepresentation of God the misrepresentation of God's ways being acted out and the impact of that on other people. Not only did he not sin in his anger, but after being angered, he actually took a redemptive action. Right? Caitlin was up here talking about redeeming, stepping into, you know, our city, into the Areas that require the most redemption and being a part of that. We can be angry over sin. We can be angry over the misrepresentation of God. But we also need to be moved into a role where we are a part of redeeming. So, what is righteous anger? I want us to understand that first before we go any further. So if you look up on the screen here, righteous anger is anger that is directed at the impact of sin. Righteous anger is anger regarding things that are defaming to God's name. Think about the story of David and Goliath. David comes out to where the army of Israel is, and he's out there to deliver some bread and cheese. That's what it says. And while he's there, Goliath comes out and mocks not only the Israelites, he mocks the God of Israel. And David goes, Whoop, what? 
do you know who God is? And he's, then he turns to all the soldiers and he's like, this is not okay. He can't say these things about God. He does not know who he is messing with. And so they go, well, somebody's got to go out and fight this Philistine. He's been coming out every morning and saying this. And David goes, okay, let's do this. God will be with me. And that was the key. He knew who his God was. Righteous anger is anger regarding God's ways being violated. Righteous anger is anger that is not sinful in its words and actions. Righteous anger is anger that doesn't scare people away from us. There are some people that go, well, it's not okay that these decisions are made by the government, and so they feel free to lash out and say whatever they want to say about anybody involved in politics or anyone involved with whatever situation that they're not okay with, and they sin in their anger. And that is not okay. When I went down to Argentina for about six or seven weeks for a leadership development seminar that I was running in a community there. We were having one evening of just worship and prayer, and this one uh, friend of mine who I'd gotten to know through this journey, her name was Kiva, beautiful young woman, full of joy, just a smile on her face all the time, got up unannounced at this worship time and said, I feel like I'm supposed to share my story with some of you. And she began to tell her story of how she had been abused by a family member for quite a long time. And then a few years later, got out of that situation, a few years later was raped by a guy. And as she's telling her story, I, I was up, I finally had to stand up and I got to the back of the room and as she continued on, I found myself just vibrating inside. And I was so angry. And I was like, what? This had never happened to me before in the same way. But I was so angry that I could not sit still and, and I found myself just pacing and I started praying and I'm praying against Satan and his ways that he wants to take and distort, um, you know, the image of God and he wants to take people with evil desires and harm people and take sin and be destructive in people's lives and just, just looking at the grand scheme of it and I was just vibrating. And I'm just pacing back and forth. And the thought went through my mind about these people that had done these acts to Kiva. And to my surprise, I was not angry at them. The thought actually went through my mind. What could have possibly happened to these guys to make them think that this was actually ever okay? What could have possibly taken place in them or to them that could have ever brought them to a place to think this is a reasonable act? Did they act upon it? For sure. Do they have to own that? Absolutely. But it was this moment where I felt like I had a picture of God's heart where he's going, this is why sin is so destructive and it grieves me. It angers me. Because those guys were exposed to something, had something happen to them to make them think that this was okay. 
And I just, in that moment, went, I think this is what righteous anger feels like to God. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You guys, this is why we are called to pray. And don't get me wrong, we need to pray for sicknesses, we need to pray for people that are in tough spots, all of you know, going through life. We absolutely need to pray for, the, for those people. We also are called to be warriors to rise up and pray against the advancement of sin and to take a stand and ask for God to come by his Holy Spirit and purify us and cleanse us and push back the darkness that surrounds us the destructiveness of sin in the world that we live in. We need to pray that we have a hatred for sin. That that kind of behavior is not okay. And that the light and the love of Jesus would shine into the darkest parts of our society and the world that we live in. We need to be aggressive in that kind of prayer if we want to see the world that we live in change. So God is a God that in his character is slow to get angry. And that is very good news for us. He doesn't just snap and lose his crap whenever we sin. Okay, he is slow to get angry. It actually says in Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day he, he sees my thoughts. He knows my thoughts. Every day he sees the attitudes in me. Every day he sees the actions and the words that he hears the words that come out of my mouth. And he also hears that for the worst and the most vile of all sinners. Yet he's still slow to get angry. And I am thankful for that. God still experiences anger at the way our sin is going to impact us as well as the way it's going to impact the purposes of the kingdom of God. And that saddens him. But he always holds his anger in tension with his mercy and his grace and his love too. And he does this for all of us. So, the challenge for us as an application tonight is that if God is slow to get angry and displays righteous anger and we are to represent him, how are we doing with our anger? Does our anger stay within the boundaries of a riverbank that is a, like a righteous anger? Or does it overflow the banks and become this very destructive force that is out of control and it impacts those around us? And there's a lot said about prayer in the Word of God. And it speaks of how people are viewed that display sinful anger versus righteous anger. So I get Proverbs 29, 22. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Anger is destructive 
to our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our spirits, our relationships if it's not righteous anger. A lot of the anger we experience, okay, is when we feel that our preferences have been violated. And if our preferences have been violated, then we go, well, I, I deserve to be angry. Like, what do you think Lindsay, my wife, would think if I thought, well, she hasn't considered how busy my week is this week as she's planned out her week. I deserve to be angry. She should be thinking about my week. Sounds right, doesn't it? That's not how it works. What about me thinking about her week? Or we feel that a lot of our anger we experience might be when we are inconvenienced. Okay? Somebody asks us to help them out, but we're just hoping to get a little bit of free time and, and say, well, it's cold and I, I, just, I don't really want to do that, but they, did you hear the way they said that? we don't show up, then they're probably going to be really ticked off. Man, I hate it when they put me in that situation. And we're inconvenienced and we think that we deserve to be angry about that. Or we feel our right, our right and freedoms have been trampled on by others. Think about Jonah. Okay, the prophet Jonah. Nineveh all the Ninevites had been ruthless towards the Israelites. And then God sends Jonah to go to Nineveh and gives them an opportunity to repent so that he, he won't have to wipe them out because they were very evil and vile. And sure enough, they repent. And God forgives them and he doesn't wipe them out. And Jonah goes to God and goes, See, told you, I knew you were going to be compassionate and gracious. And God's like, really? <laughs> You're mad at me because I'm compassionate and gracious. Because they repented of their sin. But it exposed Jonah's heart and he realized, oh gosh. I care more about getting even than I do them re being repentant of their sin. If anyone had a right to be angry, it was God in that moment towards those people. Yet he was slow to anger, offered the opportunity to repent, and forgave them. Many of these things may not have anything to do with God's sin that I just mentioned or God's character in ways. They're just our preferences and what tends to happen is we get offended by them as if we are God and others have, a, have a, uh, sinned against us. And it's not actually a reflection of what sin is. It's just preferences. So what does God's word say to us who are more likely to display sinful anger versus righteous anger? Ephesians 4, 26, 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And that will give an opportunity to the devil. So in other words, when God exposes sinful anger in us, he wants us to deal with it as quickly as we can. He wants us to humble ourselves, confess it, ask for forgiveness of others, and be free from the grip that might be gained in our lives by Satan. If we don't, follow God's ways with dealing with our offenses, then it opens up the door for Satan to gain territory in our hearts and harden our hearts. Where we feel justified to be angry and to lash out in a sinful way 
that is completely inappropriate. And here's how this often happens, is that an offense occurs, and we get angry, and we don't deal with it right away, and then we sit there and ponder it at night, and we talk about it with our other friends, and we think about it in the morning, and it just hit repeat, and we get in the washing machine, and it just gets bitter, and it takes root in our hearts. And the next thing we know, we're not just angry at this one male leader that we had in our lives. We're angry at all male leaders ever that existed in the planet. And then we decide to take revenge, maybe out on that person that did that. Or we lambaste any male leader we've ever had and we already prejudge and decide this is the way they're going to be because we haven't dealt with the offense and bitterness has set in if possible God actually asks us to overlook an offense and if we can't overlook it then we are to go to that person in gentleness and love and have a conversation about it. And it says that in Proverbs 19. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Okay, one of the tests of this in my own life, you guys, is if I'm going to bed at night thinking about some way that I felt like somebody offended me, and I wake up in the morning, and it's the first thing I'm thinking about in the morning, I probably haven't been able to let it go. And I probably then need to go and have a conversation as quickly as I can, because I don't want to have a hard heart. Another thing that can help us navigate our anger is to learn the difference between reacting and responding when an offense has appeared to have happened or occurred. And up on the screen here is just different ways to identify it. Reacting it's a qu is always quick. Somebody says something and all of a sudden we're like, ah, yeah, but it's this quick response. When we react, we're often assuming and judging. When we react, we get defensive right away. And when we react, pride is winning in our lives. Versus responding. Responding is a slower process. Somebody comes up and says something to you, and you might have to just stop and step back and go, keep your mouth shut, don't say anything right now. How do I respond? Responding asks questions for clarification. Responding creates time to remove ourselves from that immediate situation to maybe think and pray so that then you can go back and actually respond in a godly way. And in responding, humility wins. I've had times where people have come... Um, you know, right before I'm about to, to come up to something like this and present, and literally, as I've been walking up to the front, somebody's pulled me aside and went, I need to talk to you about something. This, I don't like this decision, and you're the one that made this decision, and I think it's really bad, and so-and-so thinks it's bad, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, wow, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to go talk to the group of people now and you're one of those people <laughs> how am I supposed to do that and I remember in that moment just looking at the person and going okay I've heard what you've had to say can I have some time to think about that and pray about that and I will get back to you the emotion inside of me was going I would love to grab a part of your body and hit it several times. <laughs> that, like, that's how I was feeling in the moment because it felt very offensive how they approached me. 
and they were angry and they were, had their finger in my face. How I felt was that. But I knew, of course, that would be a very sinful and inappropriate way to respond. So I had to just go, can I just have some time to think about that and pray about that? I went up, I taught, I came back afterwards, went to my office, and I went, God, I'm a bit angry at how that happened and what was said even, but if there is truth in that, then I want you to show me. Maybe that wasn't a good decision. Maybe there's things that I do need to consider in that. So would you talk to me about that? And to be honest, there was one thing in the whole gamut of things that they said that I went, I could probably do that better. And so I just prayed about it. I prayed for that person, and I saw them a couple of days later, and I just went up to them and said, okay, hey, had some time to think about that and pray about it, and I just want to let you know that uh, this one thing that you brought up, I think I could probably do better at that. I just want to also let you know these other things that you expressed as concerns, here's the things that are already in place, and maybe you weren't aware of that. And then I actually did say, can I just talk to you now about how that happened? It would be better if maybe you could come first and say, could I talk to you sometime when it works best for you? I have some concerns. If you would have just said that, that would have been awesome. But the fact that I was physically walking up to start teaching was and you didn't ask me that question and you just laid into me, really put me on the defensive. Okay? Create time and space where you can step back, think, and pray, and let God search your heart and then respond appropriately. Now, in some of the things we just talked about, I want to just direct your attention to these following verses that, that speak of this. It says, James 1, 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 14, 17. A quick-tempered person does foolish things, and the one who devises evil schemes is hated. Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Rather than anger coming out of our mouths and through our actions, since we are representations of Christ in his ways, instead God challenges us to respond in the opposite spirit of the person that is maybe in front of us. that we are to display the ways of God to them. We are to display the fruit of the Spirit to them instead of just going, oh yeah, you wronged me? Well, just wait. Here's what I'm going to do. That does not display God's character. That is sinful anger. Look at these last two passages before we go into just our application question time. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil. There's that responding in the opposite spirit. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Respond in the opposite spirit. Is that challenging to do? Especially if you've let bitterness sink really deep in your heart and here's this person for the 15th time coming and making this really offensive comment or committing this really offensive act towards you. Is it hard to respond in the opposite spirit? Absolutely. But it is possible. And it speaks volumes. And I'm not talking about abuse here. If there's an abusive thing happening, you need to get out of that. Ephesians 4, 29 to 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then listen to the switch. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's our model. It's hard to walk this out. So as we close tonight... I want you to get in groups of three and share with one another around two questions that I'm going to put up here and then I want you to pray for one another. This anger spectrum, I saw it when I was preparing for tonight. It has this loud anger, okay? And look at all the things underneath of that. Then subtle anger because sometimes we, what we have in our minds is the loud anger, but then we look at the subtle anger and we're like, oh, dang it. I thought I was doing good till I looked at the right-hand side. And now I'm maybe not doing so good. So the questions are up here. Look at the image and what can you identify in your displays of anger? When you look at all those words, what, what do you identify and go... And I definitely don't say much, but I like flipping the bird. <laughs> no foul language has come out of my mouth, but the little ming, 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 especially when I drive, I don't say anything. I've never hit anybody, but get behind the wheel and... <laughs> And then the second part is, and we heard it in these last two passages, talking about responding in the opposite spirit, okay? What heart change and action change do, you, do your desire, do you desire for yourself in order to respond more like Christ when you feel angry? Do you kind of go, man... I wish I could just be more humble and admit when I'm wrong instead of getting defensive. Why do I do that? Why do I think that's so hard to do? Why don't I just try it? Why don't I just practice going over and saying out loud, I'm not good at this, so that when that happens, it'll be easier for me to say it to an actual person. Why don't I, I want to become better at putting others' interests before my own. Who knows what it is? Okay, what heart change and action change do you desire for yourself? 
And then the last thing is just to share these things with each other in your group of three, and then to pray for one another, to pray that that heart change or that action change will happen for you. Okay? Just to, let's just clear the slate right now. Anybody in here never struggled with anger? All right, so it makes the first question a whole lot easier. We all struggle with it. It's just what part of it? So let's just admit it. Let's get it out there and call it sin, call it what it is, and go, that probably needs to change in me. And I don't like to confess it, but when I look at this list, there's, like, I'm guilty of all of them, or I'm guilty of everything on the left-hand side, or whatever it is. Or if there's two or three that you just kind of go, these are my go-tos. These are the ones that I struggle with the most. And just share those things. And then to go, I want to see that change. I think I need this. And then just take time, and it doesn't have to be a long prayer, but just pray for one another in that. We want to represent God well, because he is a God that is gracious, compassionate, merciful, and slow to anger. This is why we're doing this. We want to represent him well. Not to mention the incredible blessings that come to us and all the people around us if, if we have righteous anger versus the overflowing banks of the river that are destructive in sinful anger. Okay? So, I don't know who you're going to pair up with, but just grab two or three people. Take some time and answer these questions and pray for one another. And when you're done, there's snack out in the foyer. And uh, you can have a blessed rest of your night.